You're listening to the Vineyard Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit vccmountcomfort.org. Okay, if you insist, once upon a time there were two baby skunks in and out. When in was in, out was out, and out was in, in was out. One day while in was out and out was in, mother skunk said, go find in, out. Out went out to find in, time passes. Out and in come in. Mother skunk says to out, how'd you find in, out? And he says, instinct. (laughs) Whoever asked for it, punish them. Well, I'm Mike Mulvaney, and um, our dear pastor since the first of the year has been encouraging people to bring testimonies about what God is doing, what burns in their hearts, what passions they have. And so I'm going to give you a message today about solitude. Yeah, that's kind of the reaction I thought. But let me explain. Next slide. Merriam-Webster Dictionary gives us a definition that says quality or state of being alone or remote from society. Seclusion, okay? Being by ourselves. Don't frown at me, dear. You're going to have to listen to that. Okay? And that's not a bad definition as far as it goes, but it's not the way it works for me. Next slide, please. For me, solitude means my body has to be in motion, and I'll explain more about that later. I need to be outside where I can see God's hand in creation. And I do it primarily to meet with my Lord. I wrote a song actually a few years ago where the first verse said this, my best times are those times when we're together and I come with no agenda and no plan. I come with just my heart and we wall out all distractions and you flow in me an extension of your hand. That's what solitude is for me. So how did I come to be this way? Well, as I've looked back on this and preparing for this message, got any suggestions for where to put that mic? Just push it back further away from the corner of your mouth. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm a famous pea popper. Getting enough? Okay. Um, there have been five influences in my life that have shaped a lot of the way that my walk has turned out. And there have been lots of other influences, but three of them affected my head, my mind, my thinker and two affected my heart. Next slide, please. Three things influenced my my thinking. One, I was an only child. In fact, I am an only child of an only child. My dad was an only child. And although my mom had a brother and a sister, most of my cousins were 10, 11 years older than me on either side of the family. And I can't say they're ever mean to me, But hanging out with the little kid isn't that much fun. We all have kind of gone through that thing, so, you know, they do their part. But I, you know, in family gatherings, I was cool with just being by myself. And although I have friends, I've never had huge amounts of friends. Now, there's a contrast here in our marriage because my wife could befriend a lamppost. And if you put her in a room with 30 people for two hours, she'd know all of them, their families, their family histories, and their children. Give her another two, you know. And God was gracious to give me that blessing because I've I've needed that sometimes or I would have been a hermit completely. And so I've learned some things from that, but um, I got comfortable being by myself. 
and I'm smart. It's not bragging if you can do it, okay? Um, but I've also learned some things along the way because there was a period of my life when I found some of my value from being intelligent. If I was smarter than the next guy in school, if I was getting better grades. But I've learned since then, and Paul kind of articulates this best, is Paul was, Paul was probably one of the smartest men of his day. He was a Pharisee amongst Pharisees. He knew the letter of the law down to its finest and smallest point. He also knew his Roman citizenship, but he learned to use it as a tool, a tool that ultimately took him to his death, but it also caused the spread of the gospel when he said, I appeal to Caesar. He knew that that would take him to Rome. So my intelligence, I'm learning, is a tool. And again, as Paul said, count it all as filthy rags compared with the upward call of Christ. I'm learning those things. But when I started, God made me smart. And I had parents that grew up in the Great Depression. Now, there's a number of folks in this room who are kind of in that age range where you may have had parents that grew up at that time, too. For those of you that are younger and only read about it in books, it was the largest financial collapse in the history of this nation. Fortunes vanished in seconds. Suicide rates shot through the roof. And even normal middle-class families at times had to endure hunger. In fact, I remember my dad telling me stories when he was young about going out to his grandfather's farm, my great-grandfather, and he'd do that about every summer. And he told me of the fun he had out there and the mischief that he got into and the things that he learned. And it was a great time for him. It was a good time for him to be there. But the reason that he went out to the farm is my grandparents, his parents, sent him out there to assure that he had three good meals every day and a roof over his head every night. I didn't find, out that, find that out until a few years later. And so people that grow up in the Great Depression have a tendency to respond to life maybe differently than people who haven't had that experience, and particularly when they become parents. Now, it manifests in different ways, but in my case, my parents decided that the best way to depression-proof me was to make sure that I got a good education. And oh, by the way, God tattled on me. He told them I was smart. And so there was, you know, no place to hide, no siblings to hide behind. And so as I grew, they encouraged me to be involved in educational activities. And I gained a, a hunger for just gathering knowledge, just for gathering knowledge's sake. I enjoyed it. And, you know, if I wasn't doing too well in school, they weren't mean to me, but they gently removed any distractions so I could get my eye back on the ball. And consequently, I did do well in school until I was kind of left on my own, which is a whole long story for another time. Uh, but in college, I kind of dropped the ball because they said, you're man now, you've got to take care of this. But those three things together kind of made me into a solitary thinker. To this day, this thing is always running. You know, there's always something. And ask anybody who I've done research for, oh, you want to buy an XYZ? I'll find out the best, the worst, the pros and cons and let you know shortly, because it's fun for me to do that. But if you add all that up, kid doesn't mind being by himself. He's intelligent, really likes digging in knowledge. And oh, by the way, he doesn't dress like his peers because his parents won't let him. What do you call that person? A nerd. <laughs> next, next slide, please. But along the way, there are a couple of hard influences. 
if I'd been allowed to grow just with that orientation to gaining knowledge, my heart would have been dead. And it spent a lot of time sleeping, frankly, through most of my life. But sky watching was one of the first things that happened to me. And I don't remember exactly when I started looking at the skies, but you know, I, my parents were good Roman Catholics. I was raised that way. I knew there was a God. We weren't real friendly with him. But I knew there was a God, and I knew that was his creation out there. And it was beginning to touch my heart even before I gave my life to Jesus, much more so even after. And then the other one's fairly obvious, music. You know, when I, I think about what Lucifer did, the job he had as the leader of worship in heaven, and how he screwed that up. And yet, in that moment, God bequeathed worship and music into this world. You know, people have abused music, okay? And we abuse a lot of other art forms. But in its purest form, it's pure emotion, it's a connection directly to the Father's heart. And see, that was the tiny crack in the door of my heart that gave God access to me. Now, music wasn't all, you know, roses because I allowed it to become an idol. It was the other thing in which I found value for myself. Because one of the challenges when you're a nerd is that you're not cool. And it's entirely possible you never will be. And it's hard to get girls except for nerdy girls. <laughs> and so at 11 years old, you know, early on when I was, music's influence was anytime I was around a piano, I'd be trying to play it. And I wasn't like other little kids. I didn't bang. I was trying to work out a melody. At 11 years old, thanks in no small part to the influence of the Beatles and my constant nagging, my parents got me a guitar. And it wasn't a very good one, and I played it anyway, so they, they knew. And since then, you know, it's, it's just been there. But the thing was, for the longest time, it was part of how I found cool. You know, I could be in a band. Everybody thinks rock stars are cool, like as if I was a rock star. But at any rate, that battle happened through most of my life. And through God's intervention in a number of wonderful ways, and we won't go into all those stories, I eventually began to see God gave me that as a gift to interact with him, to create an atmosphere of worship for people, to just have the pure joy of his creation in my hand. And I've learned that it also is a tool. But the neat thing about this tool is when we get to heaven, oh, the music we're going to make. Next slide, please. So, my timeline. From birth to 1970, thereabouts, before Christ, I grew in nerdiness. Uh, you know, I was, I, I placed very highly in, in my junior high school class. I was 22nd out of a class of 1,100 and change at North Central High School. You know, I, those, those things were badges of honor to me then. And then when I went to General Motors Institute, I tried to rely on just merely my natural intelligence and found out there is some work involved, so there's a challenge there. But in 1970, I was 18 years old, and in the spring of the year, I gave my life to Jesus. Yeah. Now, I won't tell you the whole story, but it wasn't going to the altar. It wasn't a mountaintop experience. It was a very quiet surrender that happened at the end of an experiment that I'd started in the fall of 1969, when I said, hey, if you're real, prove it. 
And I'm glad we're not living in Old Testament times because that would have been a little puff of smoke right there. But fortunately, my arrogance was covered and Jesus met me. Now, a lot of time between 1970 and about 2005. Many wonderful things happened during that time. I met and married Deborah. We had two wonderful kids. I had success in the working world. I served in churches. And one of the things I found all the way along that time is to the extent that I served my Lord and I was obedient, I was rewarded. He gives blessings. He's faithful to his promises. Trouble was for me, it was so much out of my head that an awful lot of those things, I thought, that's nice, God, thanks. I'll put this up here on the shelf. And I never opened some of those boxes for the longest time. Around 2005, I'm not sure the exact year, but after Rick had been pastor here for a while, I inherited the leadership of the worship ministry. Uh, Derek Locks and his wife, Renee, had moved on to Kansas, and I was already kind of in that transition because Derek, in order to make, make ends meet, was doing some touring as a bassist for another Christian artist, so he wasn't always around on Sunday morning, so it was kind of naturally fell into my hands. But that was kind of the tip of the iceberg. And there was a point at which Rick recognized that I wasn't really doing well, and I said a few things. He said, we should talk. <laughs> Next slide. Um, if any of you have ever counseled with Rick, you will understand what I'm about to tell you. And I'm going to share words that actually kind of came from a friend of mine who stayed with us for a while and came to counsel with Rick. And he had a lot of challenges in his life, and he was going to hold on to them. And he says, come, come home from his first session with Rick, and he sits down and says, you know, I went in there. I wasn't planning to say anything. He says a few words, and I spill my guts. That is his gifting, to be able to provoke us to reveal the hurt. And he's the second heart doctor this church has had. He's worked on the one inside. The other one worked on both sides. So I had said, I have a heart, but what do I do with it? And Rick and I talked, and I absorbed some things from him. And through the Holy Spirit, I started thinking about some things. And together we figured this out. I was at that time doing a bicycle ride every morning for exercise, about an hour. Because I had a job, I had to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to do this. But I was able to do it safely. I had a route picked out. I had good safety equipment and so on and so forth. But the thing the Holy Spirit showed me was, you know, when you're riding your bike, the thinker's busy. It has to operate the machine. It has to give you a situational awareness so you can stay safe. And meanwhile, your heart, your feeling side, can be open. So when you go on your ride, invite me to join you, and let's fellowship. And that was the beginning of my love affair with solitude. Because you know, riding those roads at that hour in the morning, there's not much traffic. For a good portion of the year on the front and back ends of the rideable weather, it was dark. But there were stars out. And as the weather, you know, as the, as the days progressed, I began to see those sunrises. And God started making inroads into my heart. Now, from then until about 18 months ago, I've had kind of an on and off again relationship with that solitude time. And part of it was because I allowed the lie of the urgent 
to overcome the truth of the important. And many of you struggle with that or have struggled with it in the past because the job barks at you and there's stuff going on at home and you get tied up and worry about this, that, or the other. And I did at times to where it kind of sloughed off. The neat thing about it, though, is having started it, God pursued me, and there are times I just kind of, oh, there you are. Thank you, Lord. And so that's the way the things were until about 18 months ago when, ha-ha, I retired. I know it sounds like I'm putting one over and bragging about it. It's not as if it was, you know, something I earned per se. It's just, it was time. God said, you know, you can go. You don't have to keep doing that. I got other stuff for you. And since I retired, the day after I retired, I was on my bicycle. I was on the Pensy Trail outside of Cumberland, and I rode for about an hour. And since then, three times a week, just about every week, rain, snow, cold. I've been out there in temperatures as low as single digits. I'm not bragging, I know how to dress for it. And I so want to spend that time. And the only exception is, if there's a thunderstorm, I'm staying home. And I've been able to more deeply participate in that exchange with the Father. And like I said before, there's no agenda there. I show up, I say, what do you want to do, God? Some days I pray, some days I worship in my head, some days it's a combination of things. Some days I show up and say, I got nothing. I am just worn out. He says, that's cool. Let's just hang. So why creation? Next slide, please. Right now, one of my favorite verses is from Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. It says, the heavens proclaim the glory of God, and the skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. This wordless testimony is available to anybody in any language, every place on this globe. And to that point, Paul even says in Romans 1.20, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Every single soul on this planet, whether they've heard the gospel or not, have seen it. And if they pursue it as God has promised, he will meet them. And it is a glorious meeting, I have to tell you. Next slide. This verse I'm about to share, I, I went and, you know, I was doing some research and I wasn't just working with my favorites, although my favorites just got on the top of the pile. But I found a bunch of verses about God showing himself in creation, but I had missed this one. I've read Job, but I kind of right on by this one. I'm going to read it to you slowly. But ask the animals and they will instruct you. Ask the birds of the sky and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth and it will instruct you. Let the fish of the sea inform you. Which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? The life of every living thing is in his hand as well as the breath of all mankind. He's in all of it. You know, you can be walking downtown through a cruddy-looking alley and there's a little dandelion sticking up and it's just a sign of God saying, no, 
I'm in control here too. And every single soul on this planet is blessed this way. And what's interesting about this verse, this is Job speaking, and the this that the Lord has done was his destruction. His destruction of his health, his property, his reputation, everything that he had. But if when we stand back and look at the large context of Scripture, these truths are true about every situation we find ourselves in. Creation knows its creator. That includes us. So, it's been wonderful talking about creation, but what is happening in me that's changing? And the first thing that I really kind of get is joy. Um, it's kind of hard to nail down a definition for joy because there's a lot of ways of looking at it, but I found one that seems to work for what I want to share right now. And this is a piece of it that comes from Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. Boy, how do you like a title like that? <laughs> with, a, with a definition for a word with three letters. Joy, happiness over an unanticipated or present good. Unexpected benefits from God are expressed in terms of common experiences. Wow, that's my walks in the morning. Yeah, I'll be walking along, and it's a shame Michelle's not here because she likes these guys, but you know, in the winter, there's snow on the ground, the trees are kind of gray, and there's this beautiful spot of red that pops up. There's cardinals all along the trail. Or I'll be walking along, and all of a sudden, I'll scare up a blue heron who's, who's sitting down in the, in the weeds and has taken flight, and those things are so beautiful in flight. I've seen all kinds of birds. I've seen uh, a couple coyotes. The first time was a little bit spooky because I was walking along the trail, and thought I saw something out of the corner of my eye, looked, wasn't there. And I keep walking. I looked again, not there, but I detected some motion. And finally, I moved fast enough, and there he was, moving like a ghost. There's incredible beauty that we see. And every time I see that, it's kind of, ooh, that's wonderful. Um, the most conservative estimate I could find on the number of references to joy is over 200 in the Bible. Practically every aspect of human and spiritual existence is touched by joy, including suffering. For Christians to be able to have the perception that if we've been called to suffer in the name of Jesus, we can have joy. I can't explain that, but if you've ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and I don't recommend you do it during mealtime, you will see person after person after person who went to their deaths, terrible deaths. You know, some were burned at the stake and they were singing hymns to God till their throats burned. They had that joy. Um, and joy does some other things. Being one of the fruit of the Spirit, the, the fruits of the Spirit seem to encourage each other. If you're deficient in one and discovering another, you find a way to, for it to come along. You know, joy helps bring peace and hope. I wrote a song by the name of Joy some years ago, and the chorus goes like this. Joy feels like sunshine as it warms the chilly places in a heart that is hopeless. Joy looks like moonlight. It's a beacon in the darkest night that shows me my way back home. Joy does that. But that's kind of like the starter. Because the next thing that happens is delight. Next slide, please. Now, 
If you look at dictionary definitions of joy, you're going to find delight oftentimes, and, and, and both words can be translated from, a, from common biblical words in the Aramaic and the Greek. So some places it says joy, depending upon the translator. But one of the things that I've seen about the way delight is rendered in the context that it finds, out, finds itself in is that joy is kind of that, ooh, God just surprised me. But delight is relational. And it starts on his side because it says he delights in us. Zephaniah 3.17 is one of you know, the most famous verses about that. He will delight in you with singing. It's hard some days to imagine God delighting in me, but the thing is God sees the cre creature that he created always through the blood of Jesus. And it's just amazing that he do does that. Um, in, the in the song, So Will I, in the last verse, one of the phrases, I see your heart eight billion different ways. Every single soul on this planet is loved by God the same way. It's almost incomprehensible because some of them are doing some pretty nasty stuff, but it's not the doing, it's that who they are, who they are created to be. And God knows some of them are not going to accept the gift, but he still loves. And one of the neat things about, that we see about delight is uh, in Proverbs in particular, there's a number of places where God talks about qualities of care that, character that he delights in, the things that he sees, which actually are reflections of his own character. Proverbs 11.1, 1, accurate weights. Proverbs 20, integrity. Proverbs 12.22, faithful dealings. Proverbs 15.8, the prayers of the upright. And then there's Song of Songs, which is about as del much delight as a person could express for another. It's the illustration of his desire for his bride. And the neat thing about delight is as I begin to enter into it, as he delights in me, I begin to delight in him. He's teaching me how to do that. And the longer that that goes on, the easier it is for me to express delight in people that are less than delightful. And in fact, we learn to see others as we learn how he sees us. So coming back to him over and over in intimacy and, and to tell me more about me. And as he does, he's telling you about his creation, the rest of his kids, and the rest of the ones that aren't his kids yet, but could be. Next page. Out of all that, at least for me, the thing that I've begun to see is a greater alignment with God. Now, alignment is a word that we've been hearing a lot about in the church, especially around kingdom theology. Uh, it's not a word that shows up a lot in the Bible itself, but it's demonstrated very ably in a number of places. And probably one of the most important um, examples is Jesus himself. In John 5, 19, he says this, Jesus replied, truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. I hear your objections. I've had them too. But he was sinless. Yes, he was. But he walked the earth as a man. And we see his temptations and trials that he had to struggle with. And on top of that, he tells his disciples, greater works than these will you do. I think in that phrase, he's telling us we can have an even greater alignment than we think we have, yes. that we can come into that place of oneness with him. Yeah, that's good. Next slide, please. 
In fact, when, when Jesus was getting ready to leave this earth, when he was getting ready to go to the cross, he prayed that whole prayer that John captures in the 17th chapter of his gospel. And a good portion of that is devoted to praying directly for the apostles and disciples that he could look at. But starting in verse 17, he started praying for the ones yet to come, us. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. Mm I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. The purpose of glory is unity. That's so cool. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one. Alignment isn't a, it's on one day and it's off the other. It's progressive. And when we start, we're this far apart. We know nothing of God until he introduces introduces himself and we say yes. But the more that we spend time in fellowship and intimacy with him, and a lot of times without any preconceived ideas about how that time should be spent so that he can direct, that gap begins to close. And as that gap begins to close, we begin to see that we can exert power in this world. We get closer and closer and closer. There's a couple problematic verses that many of us have wrestled with in our Christian lives. One of them is, you know, ask what you will and it'll be given unto you. You ask, how come I don't have it? I want that. Of course, then there's James kind of giving the other side of this. You don't have because you don't ask and you, or you ask to spend it on your passions. Well, this is the answer to that. As we become aligned with God, we see what the Father is doing, just as Jesus did. We do what the Father is doing. And the kingdom not yet becomes the kingdom now. We have the opportunity by aligning ourselves with the Father, by being intimate with him, by him being the great focus of our lives, to be able to hasten the proliferation of the kingdom of God in this world. And there's nothing in the book that says it can't completely arrive before Jesus returns. We just have to be open to keep driving down that road. Next slide. So, I know some of you are thinking, well, you're retired. You can spend time doing that. I want to remind you that when I started, I was working. I had a job. I will admit the kids were out of the house. But, you know, pressures of job, maintaining a home, you know all the stuff that you do and that you're involved in. And yet, because I spent that time, I began to have that fire. And I've been talking about solitude because that trips my triggers. And the reasons it trips my triggers is because I started out to be a solitary thinker. Well, I want to be a solitary feeler now, but then maybe not so solitary at times when he needs me to be engaged. But there's something that God made specifically for you. And some of you already know this. But there is an activity or an experience or more than one kind of those things, and not just inside this room, where you feel the tug of God on your heart. And the wise in your number, in our number, who have figured that out, then go and spend that time directly. But if you haven't been doing that and you're concerned about it, 
I urge you the next time that he tugs, go through that thing, spend more time on it. Because, well, Peter reminds us in the Lord, a day is, a thousand, is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. He's a complete master over time. Now that's not to say that the time that you spend with him that he's going to give back. This is not a proportional kind of arrangement. God is God. He's sovereign. But every bit of time that you spend with him, you will be amazed at what he can do with it. And there are testimonies even throughout scripture where people, and even our, our dear pastor here, where, you know, it's only been a few minutes gone by and I thought I was there for hours just luxuriating in the presence of God. So time is not really an issue. You still have to find out when. And it may not be on a schedule. It may have to be random. You may have to be, listen, get a real refined ear so you know that, ooh, I need to spend just at least a few minutes right now away and let God do what he wants to do with me. And in other cases, it may be something that's already really well built into your life and you never thought of it that way, but when it's going on, you've always kind of got God in the back of your mind. Mowing the lawn, making dinner. It is amazing the places where he wants to, will, will come and meet us. The way this gets better is coming with intention. Once you know there's something that you can do with him that really lights your fire, you go there, go there often, go there as much as you can, recognize he's patient, he knows you have a life, and he's, he's, he's built those opportunities to fit your life. And come as Samuel did the first time that he heard the Lord's voice, because the first time he's, you know, he's in bed and he hears the Lord's voice, but he doesn't know it's the Lord. And he asks the prophet, hey, you called. Huh? Go back to bad Samuel. And the second time, you called me. No, go back to bed. Third time, oh, next time you hear that voice, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. You don't have to have an agenda. You just have the willingness and intention to be in his presence, and your life will be changed. You'll have something like what I have in my solitude. Now, earlier in the presentation, I talked about creation, but one of the things that's very hard is to describe in words the beauty that God has put out there. Well, when I've been walking, I've been taking pictures. And so I'd like to share a video of some of the things I've seen. I hope it blesses you. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. To receive more audio content from The Vineyard, click the subscribe button in iTunes.